Well, this morning, um, if you're here for the first time, we're in a series uh, that's titled, You Say You Want a Revolution. This title may sound familiar to you. It's taken from the first two lines of a song written in 1968, 50 years ago. Can you believe that? By Paul McCartney and John Lennon, and recorded by their obscure little band called The Beatles. Those first two lines went, uh, you say you want a revolution, well, you know we all want to change the world. A revolution seems to be the spirit of our times, or, or even more basically, rebellion, uh, discontent. People are all, all around the world are agitating for change, or for revolutions political, and social, and moral, and spiritual, and yet as we've been observing uh, over these weeks, what we're really desperate for, and, and at the base of it all, no earthly revolution really can produce. Our, our needs are, are far deeper than can be met by any human leader, by any social or political or economic system. Our deepest needs, our deepest longings are for the rule of God in our world, and in our individual lives, for Jesus Christ to reign as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Uh, we're taking a, a deeper look at a prayer that may be familiar to you. It's a prayer that Jesus gave his disciples as a pattern for how they should pray. And somewhere along the line, somebody started calling it the Lord's Prayer. And we're studying the Lord's Prayer in this series kind of line by line because the Lord's Prayer is a revolutionary prayer. And for those who take the time to understand it deeply, uh, and then to use it consistently as a pattern for your own praying, I, I think a, a much needed revolution begins to occur in their own relationships with God. So I'm going to ask you to stand one more time, and it's, it's our tradition here at LifePoint to read the scripture standing and read aloud together. Pray then, like our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Well, this morning we've, uh, we've come to the second and third of the God-centered petitions or requests, if you prefer that term, that, that form the first half of pattern of prayer, they're both in verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But there are four things that kind of struck me that, that, that I hope makes sense to you this morning as we get into these two prayer requests, these two petitions. And the first is the, the place, what I'm going to call the place of the prayer. Um, this morning when I refer to the prayer, I'll be referring not generally to the whole prayer, but specifically to verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I made mention previously that in giving the disciples this pattern prayer, he gave them an address, first of all, our Father in heaven. We looked at that last week, our Father in heaven. And then that's followed by three God-centered Petitions, hallowed be your name, that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And, and then those are followed by three man centered petitions. 
morning. And we'll be getting into those next week. There's a sequence to these petitions, and that sequence actually matters. This pattern prayer that Jesus gave his disciples builds. Uh, there's, a, there's a logical progression to it. And here in verse 10, we see the second and the third of those God-centered petitions. And again, by the place of prayer, as I use that phrase, I mean this logical order in which Jesus sequenced these petitions and really the specific place that the two petitions in verse 10 occupy. The first petition Jesus gave them is that the name of God may be hallowed. We saw that last week. That is, that God himself would be regarded and reverenced as holy. We saw that his name is, represents the fullness of who he is as he has revealed himself to us. But the moment that we pray, may your name be hallowed, that is, regarded as holy, honored, glorified, as holy. We're confronted by the realization that that the name of the holy and eternal God is not hallowed by the majority. I'm not talking about the majority in the church necessarily, although that, that certainly is possible, but certainly not hallowed by the majority of the population. So we ask, why not? Why isn't everyone preoccupied with humbling themselves before God, with worshiping him and advancing his reputation in the world. Why not? And there are at least three parts to that answer, I think. First, is that the world system is, by the world system, I'm talking about the world uh, as ruled by Satan, the God of this world, the Bible says, Jesus called him that. That system is aligned in rebellion against God and against his kingdom. You don't have to look too far into the world's, for example, of education, uh, entertainment, politics, to see the truth of this first part of the answer. It's, it's really self-evident as you begin to look at it through, those, through that lens. Second, um, you and I, and everyone on the planet have a sin nature. We're always conflicted, aren't we, between honoring God and honoring ourselves. The serving God and serving ourselves. And if you're like me, you know, honoring and serving yourself often, too often, looks like the better choice, right? I mean, it presents as the better choice. Do I honor God or do I honor myself? Well, self looking pretty good right now at least in terms of the values and the priorities of the kingdom of me, right? The Apostle Paul captured this conflict in Romans 7, where he wrote, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Does that describe your experience at all? Come on, I'm all alone up here. Does that describe your experience? It does mine. In spades. I want to do right. Evil lies close at hand. 
And third, there, there's another kingdom, isn't there? Uh, it's called the kingdom of Satan or the kingdom of darkness, and it is opposed to God and his glory and honor. If you want to learn more about it, go online and, uh, and, and check out our series that we did some time back called uh, How to Meet the Enemy. Uh, all about spiritual warfare. Well, so these three uh, realities, uh, first of all, the world system aligned with rebellion uh, against God and his kingdom, uh, our sin nature, and then this other kingdom, the kingdom of Satan. These three realities stand as painful reminders to us of the very essence of the human predicament. Because as Christ followers and as children of the Heavenly Father, we have a fundamental desire deep down as part of our, our new nature. We have an innate desire to, to honor and to glorify the name of our Heavenly Father, to hallow His name. And yet the moment we start into that enterprise, we encounter opposition, don't we? I mean, not only from all around us, but even more profoundly often from within our own sinful hearts and minds. And, and, and we experience that conflict, the kingdoms. And so the second petition that Jesus taught us to pray is your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Which brings us to the progression of the prayer, if you will. The progression of the prayer. Again, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as, as it is in heaven. But what do we mean when we speak of God's kingdom? basically define that a kingdom is a, a realm in which there is a king who rules sovereignly according to his own will. A kingdom implies that there is a king. And therefore there is a, a monarchy. God rules over his kingdom as a sovereign monarch. We Americans, uh, we kind of rejected kings a while back, right? Kind of decided we didn't like that idea. And yet we're enamored with royalty. Absolutely enamored with royalty. And uh, we even had a president and his wife during their term of office, you know, the White House was called Camelot. So we love the idea. We hate the reality, the idea that one person will reign over us. But this prayer says, bring it, literally. Your kingdom covenant literally means bring it. Let your kingdom come, let it happen. Assert your will, God, and let it grow and expand until it takes first place in our lives, takes first place in our world. Well, someone might ask, if God is king over everything, then, then why do we even need to pray for the kingdom to come? And that's a great question. And it's best understood, I think, by noting the difference between, his, between God's kingship and his kingdom. Kingship, kingdom. When we think of God in terms of his kingship, we recognize that he's already king. He's, 
He's always been king. He will always be absolutely sovereign over nature and history and whatever comes throughout all of eternity. Psalm 22, 28 says that very thing. It says, for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Psalm 103, 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens. His kingdom rules over all. Psalm 146, 10, the Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. We can think of God's kingship as his sovereign rule over everything and everyone. Uh, even over those who defy him, even over those who disobey him, rebel against him. He is king of all the universe. But when the Bible talks about the kingdom of God, it's usually referring to something very specific, and that very specific thing is the unique and redemptive reign of Christ in the hearts and the lives of believers that, that results in faith and love and repentance and obedience and engagement and the advancement of the message of the gospel, joining God in his kingdom purposes throughout the world. Jesus came to usher in a kingdom that was not a political kingdom, but a spiritual one. Remember that, that Jesus, as he stood before Pilate, and Pilate asked him, are you a king? And he said, uh, yeah, I am, but my kingdom is not of this world. In other words, it's not the kind of kingdom where people are going to come and fight for it right now, at least. Not that kind of kingdom. And so what we realize is that the kingdom isn't a place. We talk about the kingdom of God, we're not talking about a place. We will one day. But we're really talking about a relationship. The kingdom of God is a realm, and it is a realm of grace, where the damage that, that has been done to us by sin gets repaired. It's, it's the place where lives are made whole. It, it exists where people enthrone Jesus Christ as the Lord of their lives and choose to do his will. And then the prayer continues with that six-word phrase, um, as in heaven, so on earth, literally in the, in, the, in the Greek, as in heaven, so on earth. So as we think about that, we, the kingdom of God can be regarded in three tenses, if you will, verb tenses. The first is that the kingdom has already come. It came when the Lord Jesus was here. Jesus ushered in the kingdom of God. He began his ministry saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that phrase at hand in our English standard version Bibles that we use here, literally means now here. The kingdom of God is now here. Because that is true, repentance is the right response. Last week I shared with you a, a song we used to sing in Sunday school. This week, another one has been running through my head. 
I don't remember all the words, but I remember this part that said, there's a flag flying high over the castle of my heart, or the castle of my heart, or the castle of my heart. There's a flag flying high over the castle of my heart, for the king is in residence there. And, and so the flag that was once there has been lowered. The, the flag of the kingdom of me has been lowered. The banner has been taken off the ramparts, as it were. And, and the flag that flies there now is the flag of the kingdom of heaven, and it flies over the hearts and lives of those who are citizens of the kingdom of God. Remember that to the Pharisees, Jesus said, um, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So that, so that in all of the work of Jesus, as he demonstrated his authority over the physical realm, the spiritual realm, as he cast out demons, as he healed the sick and made the blind to see, made the deaf hear, raised the dead, as he was doing all of those things, he was demonstrating that the kingdom of God had come in power. So the kingdom has already come. For us today, as we look from, from our vantage point here in 2018, we're looking back and we're saying, saying that the kingdom has already come. And then secondly, we would say that it is also here now. The kingdom is also here now, at this moment, in the hearts and lives of all who submit to him and all who believe in him. Colossians 1, 13 and 14, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness, the kingdom of darkness, and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. And, and as he rescued us from and that dominion of darkness where we would be, picture a dark castle, if you, know, if you like. But the metaphor is very clear, the, the kingdom of darkness. And, and we're trapped there. And the king comes on this rescue mission and he, and he invades that kingdom, that castle, and that, that place. And he delivers us and brings us over into his, his kingdom and, and makes us his children and uh, takes us as his own. But the day is yet to come when his kingdom will have been established here upon the earth. So there's a future thing about this. That day is coming. The whole trajectory of the Bible, the whole trajectory of the story of redemption directs our gaze forward to that. Jesus Christ came down from heaven to earth to found, to usher in the kingdom. And he's still engaged in that task, and he will be until the end when it's completed. And then he will, according to Paul, hand it back to God the Father, and that so that God may be all in all. Let's read this, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 28. Christ, this is Paul speaking, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. And then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom. Notice this now. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. 
For he, that is Jesus, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. There's coming a day when, when Jesus will say to the Father, here it is, here's the kingdom. I'm handing it back to you. And, and Jesus takes his rightful place in authority under the Father. Revelation 11, 15 through 17 captures this as well. It says, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. This is a, a vision that John the Apostle had of heaven. It's written in a book called Revelation, the very end of the Bible. Chapter 11, 15 through 17, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven. By the way, that number seven, the number of fulfillment, the final trumpet. There were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. If you're hearing Arnold's Messiah right now, you're right on. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, and you have taken your great power and begun to. You have been handed over. Well, third, there's a, a problem with this prayer. Um, and, and the problem with the prayer centers on the question, whose agenda then is going to rule in my life? Uh, when we get down to the business of everyday living, uh, we find over and over again, at least I do, that, that the will uh, we want to do and see done is in reality our own, as I mentioned earlier. Right? Right. Let it go. It's always been so. From the dawn of time. You think about it. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve lived in a perfect kingdom under God's perfect, loving provision. And yet they rebelled against God's rule and acted in self-serving disobedience. The irony of that is incredible, right? Because, because we, we can often tell ourselves, well, if, if things just weren't so hard, you know, I know it would be easier to obey God. You know, if my finances were different, I lived in a different house, drove a different car, had better insurance, better retirement. You know, if all these things were just so, then I'd, then I'd be able to, to follow God more faithfully and more trustingly. And yet, we know that our our great, 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 definitively great grandparents lived in a perfect environment and yet they rebelled. And since then, we're all born as members of Adam's race, uh, traitors to the crown, as it were, living in the kingdom of darkness, living east of Eden, in the kingdom of darkness. And later on in the time of the judges, you might remember this if you've ever read the, the book of Judges. If you haven't, Read it. If you've got little boys in your home, read it to them because it's great stuff for little boys. It's my favorite book when I was a kid. 
In the time of the judges, the elders of Israel rejected God as king over Israel. They, they wanted a human king. So that this, literally, so that they could be like all the other nations. Your kids ever tell you something like that? I just want to be like everybody else. And here's, here's Israel having an adolescent fit. Read about it, 1 Samuel 8. God put things in perspective for Samuel. And when he explained to Samuel what was going on, he, says, he said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people. By the way, Samuel was the prophet. He was the judge. He was the, the judges were, were the leaders of Israel at the time. And at this moment, it was Samuel, the prophet. God put things in perspective for Samuel when he explained, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Don't take it personally, Samuel. They reject your rule. They reject your leadership. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me from being king over them. When Jesus was born and he began his ministry, John tells us that Jesus came to his own, that is the Jews, and his own did not receive him. In John 19, Jesus stood on trial before the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. And it says in John 19, 14 through 16, now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he, that is Pontius Pilate, said to the Jews, behold your king. There's... They're standing on some kind of platform, some kind of probably a Bema seat, a judgment seat. Behold your king. And so Jesus is standing there. He's been scourged. He has a crown of thorns. He's bloody. He's humbled. Behold your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered him, we have no king but Caesar. Huh? This is, these are the Jews. This is Israel. We have no king but Caesar, and so he delivered him over to them to be crucified. See, I can't sincerely ask for God's will to be done without realizing that it will require denying myself and submitting my will to this. Jesus asked the question in Luke 6.46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? I really hate that question. Because it's so convicting. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? So we have to answer the question, whose agenda will control my values, my priorities, my decisions, with regard to Things like young people, my relationship with my parents. I've actually never mentioned to my parents about it. I didn't even know them. But, but whose agenda will control my values, my priorities, my decisions with regard to my relationship with my parents, whether I'll honor and obey my father and mother? Which is the first commandment as a promise, and promises long life. Whose agenda will control my choices about my sexuality, about my sexual conduct? Whose agenda will control uh, the question of who I will date, 
or who will, I guess people who are dating religious, I mean, what I mean, just hook up on that. I don't even want to talk about it. Who, whose agenda controls the question who I will marry? Or even if I will marry? All said, that empty single. We insist on marriage. Whose agenda will control the question of how I will conduct myself in my marriage? Whose agenda will control decisions about my career path, my financial integrity, my financial stewardship, how I spend my money, the stewardship of my body, of my mind, my relationship to the body of Christ, the church? Whether and how I will invest my gifts to build up the church. Whose agenda? Whose agenda? The problem with the prayer, ultimately, it comes down to, to ground zero for each of us in our lives is whose agenda gets priority. Finally, uh, the power of the prayer. Because now we can begin to see some of the impacts of praying in prayer, right? Your kingdom come, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As it is in heaven. Part of the power of the prayer, I think, is that it so vividly clarifies the true purpose of prayer, which is not to blabber God, manipulate God, coerce God, negotiate with God into doing my will, but instead to bring my will in line with His. Prayer is about informing ourselves, our priorities, our values, our kingdom to His. Lowering the flag, surrendering my life, surrendering my decision making to His. And you see that most vividly. You see most vividly what the prayer meant when Jesus voiced it in the Garden of Gethsemane in saying, Yet not mine will, Father, but yours be done. And you see, Jesus embodies this prayer. Jesus in the Garden, Jesus at every step along the way, as He began to announce to His disciples, Jerusalem, he will suffer at the hands of sinful men, and then they're going to crucify him as they're going to put him to death. And, and all along that journey, he says that Jesus, in one place it says that Jesus set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. I love that picture because he's saying, Not my will, but yours, Father, be done. And what came down to much time in the Garden of Gethsemane, and every moment after that, he said, not my will, Father, but your will be done. Uh, even at the cross, you know, Jesus said to his disciples, I, don't you realize I, I can call 10,000 angels to deliver me if that are needed? To pray your kingdom come is to pray first that, that his kingdom is established in your own heart by, by trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior and surrendering are your, your kingdom, our own kingdoms, to his. There was one place in, in the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, the relationship of Jesus and the disciples, where, where his disciples said to him, 
Um, Jesus says, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What, what does it mean to do the works of God? And Jesus answered them so simply. He said, this is the work of God. If you want to do, if you want to do the will of God, here it is. That you believe in him whom he has sent. And when we put this statement in the context of this prayer, in your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, then when we begin to realize that this whole matter of believing in Jesus is so much larger than just some kind of intellectual process. To pray your kingdom come is also to pray that the kingdom of God is established in the hearts and lives of other people, men and women, boys and girls, it's, it's to pray for the success of the gospel as it spreads throughout the world, the expansion of the mission of the gospel. By the way, do, do you know, have you ever heard the statistic that, that most of those who make a commitment to Jesus Christ in their lives do so before the age of 18? What does that tell us about where we ought to be focusing our efforts? It's not that we should neglect adults. But, but most of those who make a decision for Christ do so before the age of 18. How important is our children's ministry? How important is our youth ministry? And by the way, we need workers in both those areas. We, we want to be doing something that's going to make a huge difference. Get involved there. So to pray your kingdom come, your will be done, and this is in heaven is the ultimate all-inclusive missionary prayer. Again, to, to pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven is a prayer that Jesus would, would come back, right? Come and establish your rule on earth in concrete terms, Jesus. Come and establish your kingdom on the earth. But until then, it's a prayer that the supreme desire, the supreme activity of God's people on earth would reflect the supreme desire and activity of all of God's people and all of God's servants in heaven. I can only imagine what it will be like. I can only imagine that this prayer says that these, those things that we can only imagine, we need to wrap our minds around. We need to begin imagining them. And then begin living them out here in this place, in all of the places that we all the relationships that we enjoy. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you take these simple thoughts and apply them to our minds. Lord, you know, you know very well. Please to you for clarity about this prayer this week. So I, I just pray you take these simple thoughts and, and, and apply them in ways that difference in our lives that Lord us would be more surrendered to you that uh, the flag of our own kingdom would be lowered uh, over the castle of our hearts and that your flag would be raised high and uh, fly freely over the castle of our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name.